today we're going to be looking at basically an entire chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. One of the characteristics Paul gets into in the book of 1 Corinthians, now he's got to kind of pass the introduction, is a lot of the chapters are very succinct and that they cover very specific topics. And, and in some of your translations, you, you kind of get into the now chapters, N-O-W, where Paul says, now it's time to talk about this, and now it's time to talk about this, and you get a lot of these very discreet mini-sermons, or whatever you want to call it. But again, chapter 5 here is one of those. However, it's concerning an immoral member of a arrogant church. Normally, in this section, if you look, actually, if you look at it in your Bibles, you probably have a little super, or a heading, rather, of an immoral member. And of course, you go into to verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, it says, it is actually reported that there is a more immorality among you, the church, and immorality of such a kindness does not exist even among the Gentiles as someone has his father's wife. And of course, that's the immoral member. Boy, this is what people think about chapter chapter 5. However, if you're too quick, you're going to miss the fact that verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. And of course, the thing not to miss in chapter 5 is that there are two issues, not one. In fact, this one issue of an immoral member may in fact be really indicative of an overall problem of this arrogant church. And of course, the first four chapters, which we've gone through Corinthians, you've noticed all the many problems in the, the Corinthian believers and all the issues that they have and the arrogance that they have. Um, and we're going to see more of that going forward. So remember, this is the story, if you will, of an immoral member and what to do with him and what has not been done with him. Remember, the context is the arrogant church, which we again have been seeing in the first four chapters of Corinthians is all the issues that this church has in fact had. Remember when it says that it's actually reported that there's an immorality among you. Of course, if you remember back in the chapter one of 1 Corinthians, this had been reported back to Paul. He had received information where it says, for I had been informed you know, by Chloe's people. That's where it specifically says that information had come to Paul updating him on the status of the church and issues that they've been having. Now this, this actual immorality, this immorality among you, this immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And there's a number of reasons, apparently, if you go into the specific wording and the Greek and the culture and all that. This is not your birth mother. This is thought to be a son and a stepmother. And you can imagine what the way things were at times. Sometimes dad, you know, married a young wife, um, and that would be this guy's stepmother. And maybe the stepmother, as one some commentators put it, the stepmother may have been the same age as this son, right? But the other point is adultery isn't mentioned. The mother's probably was either divorced from the father or the father was dead. You might say, well, well, shoot, if the, you know, if he's been adultery or the father's dead, isn't that, maybe it's kind of weird, but it should be okay. Well, it's, it's considered no. Granted, when you talk about um, remarriage, if there has been a legitimate divorce for sexual immorality, or, or obviously the spouse has died, then it's legitimate to, to remarry. But in this case, this is a no-no. This is just a God-given no-no. But again, the scenario that's thought about is that the, the father's probably out of the picture, but this is the stepmother. So the son is basically sleeping with the stepmother. And in fact, they say some of the language kind of indicates that this is this has been going on. This is not like a, dare I say, not a one night stand. This is this is something that's been going on and they may be you know, living together kind of a thing. Now, it's funny because Stephen mentioned in uh, Growth Encounters, he did Growth Encounters this morning, in almost all cultures that this idea and, of course, in Judaism, this idea of uh, sleeping with either either your stepmother or if you go back a little further in time, you know, you had a wife maybe and you had a whole bunch of concubines. Well, sleeping with dad's concubines. I mean, all this sleeping around, of course, is very disgraceful anyways, is sinful anyways. But the idea of a son sleeping with one of dad's concubines, that's also bad. And we have one example from 2 Samuel 16. This is when Absalom is trying to take over the kingdom from his dad, David, who's still very much alive. And at some advice, 
after David had kind of run off and Absalom was looks like he was going to be in control for a while, it says Ahithophel is um, an advisor, a real smart guy. But Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines and dot, dot, dot. There's some information missing, but he did. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And it was an act of disgracing David and usurping the father. It's almost like I'm king now. The idea of sleeping with one of dad's, you know, even if it's um, an ex-wife, a stepmom, or a concubine is just not something that you do. The sinfulness of this should have been obvious. You get more specific in the Mosaic law. You get more specific information that Jews would have done this in Leviticus 18, 7 through 8. But either way, uh, this is not to be tolerated. And people think there's maybe there's hints of Gnosticism. That the Gnosticism was in, very quickly is an idea where, you know, spiritual spirituality is spirit, things are good. Your body is evil. And so in many cases, they thought, ah, what does it matter? It's my body. My body's evil. It's going to go away. It's going to die. Do whatever I want. If it feels good, do it. It doesn't matter, right? That's kind of the Gnosticism and its consequences. And Gnosticism became a very bad issue later on for the church going into the second century. But anyways, the idea is that per Steve's example this morning, he read and reminded me in Genesis 35, where it says, verse 22, it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. That was a bad thing. So again, you have, even as Paul implied, immorality of such a kind does not exist even among the Gentiles. This is just forbidden. Everybody knew it's forbidden, yet this guy had been sleeping with his, his stepmother. So anyways, so that's the first issue. That's, the, that's kind of the, the facts of this immoral member. But remember, as I said, this chapter talks about two issues, not one. And again, the first four chapters of Corinthians talks about the other issue, this church that's having so many issues and a lot of arrogance. And of course, you get in verse two, you have become arrogant. Now, that's not the guy. This is not the immoral member. He's talking to the church body as a whole. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, we're going to get into this arrogance thing because it doesn't seem to logically follow that you have become arrogant. What does it have to do with not mourning instead? But we're going to see some of the arrogance and maybe what some of that's talking about. But when you become arrogant, at the very minimum, they were passive enablers. Really, remember, they haven't done anything about it. Paul's critique is you guys are putting up with this behavior. So you can put up with bad behavior passively, like they know about it and they go, hey, I don't care. Or active. Maybe they're even active. You know, they are arrogant. Maybe they're even active enablers. It's like, hey, buddy, that's fine. What you're doing is fine. Again, maybe hints of Gnosticism, some other things. And there's also an idea where they may have misunderstood the whole idea of freedom in Christ, because freedom in Christ does not mean freedom to sin. Freedom in Christ has other meanings. It does not mean freedom to sin. There's a, one other speaker mentioned that maybe there's some of that built into this response that these guys are, well, hey, freedom in Christ, I can do what I want. What's the problem here? But the arrogant church, the church was hadn't done anything and should have. They could have been passive about it. They could have been active about it. And again, Paul's point is you should already have removed this guy from your midst. This should have already happened. So he's getting into obviously the criticisms. Verse three, Paul's going to start talking about his opinion and what he's doing. So let's read this. For I, and of course, Paul, I put Paul in there just as a reminder. Paul's talking here, verse three. For I, Paul, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit. So, of course, this is a letter, and Paul is somewhere else, and he's written this letter to the Corinthians. Though Paul is absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, this immoral member, as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, 
and I with you in spirit. So Paul is saying, hey, you guys are going to assemble. I'm only going to be there in spirit. With the power of the Lord Jesus, I, Paul, again, have decided to deliver such a one to Satan from the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So kind of the obvious thing not to miss here, besides all these interesting things that Paul is saying, is what has Paul done? Paul has done what the Corinthians church said, already have done. You'll notice he says, on my part, I have already judged him. He's already past sentence on this guy to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Basically, Paul has done what the Corinthians church had already have done from a distance. He has already judged this guy and in a sense done what the Corinthian church should have done. And he's saying, well, you're assembled and I'm going to be there in spirit. You need to deal with this. I have already judged him. You haven't. You've been arrogant. You've allowed this to happen, but I have already judged him. And this is what should have happened. So Paul is basically doing in verse three what the church should already have done. And of course, this is an inherent criticism of the Corinthians church. Again, he's already had a number of criticisms, which is why he wrote the letter. But this is an inherent criticism. He has condemned the man, and he's done what the Corinthians should have done already. Now, if you've been reading through Corinthians, and you see Paul says, I've already judged him who has committed this, and you had just been reading this book. And in fact, if you had been reading it, you know, kind of like sometimes it's nice to read a whole letter without even, quote, studying it, so to speak. Just reading the letter is a good thing. Just read the whole thing. You might have, in your memory, in your, in your gray matter there, you might have went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Paul just say something about not judging? Well, yes, he did. In the chapter before, in verse 5, he says, Paul says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him. So you might say, well, well, Paul, come on, buddy, make up your mind. And again, that happens. People think that way. But it's very superficial reading of scripture. You have to pay attention. What is Paul doing? He's judging, and we are called to judge. A lot of people quote, what is it, Matthew chapter 6? Judge not, lest you be judged, right? From when Jesus said, well, no, keep reading that the standard of judgment he used is going to be used against you. We are supposed to judge those within the church. We are commanded to do so, and Paul's going to command it here. But again, getting back to the point, when Paul is talking in the previous chapter, this judgment doesn't relate to this public immorality. It relates more to how the Corinthians view and judge the apostles and leaders and things like that. It's a different kind of judging. So again, be careful. Don't quote things against each other so quickly. Look for context. So again, Paul's talking about judging this immorality, and the church should have done it. Again, verse 3, Paul is doing what the church should have done, and he's talking about when you're assembled, I'm going to be with you in spirit. But then he uses this phrase, which is very interesting, and obviously causes some confusion and some debate, where he says, I have decided to deliver such a one, right, this immoral member, not the whole church, of course, but this immoral member. I have decided to discipline this man to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, people have many different ideas about that. It would be great if the Apostle Paul would explain it to us directly. I'm not going to give you the Holy Spirit-inspired exact definition of what that means. However, we're just going to reference a couple of parallel type passages and let them speak for themselves. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, we just read this. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In 1 Timothy 1, 20, Paul also says something kind of similar. He says, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. So you have something similar. So this isn't the only example of this. And then I also included something here, also from 1 Corinthians, which we haven't gotten to, where it says something interesting, where it says, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly, 
For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number asleep or dead. And this is getting up into talking about the communion and all these other things. And yet you have this very severe idea that you're actually weak and sick and number asleep. So this judgment that happens, this spiritual judgment that happens, this handing over to Satan is a very serious business. And it may happen more than we understand. Um, it's more significant than we understand. But like I said, if you read the commentators on it, you'll have a number of different opinions. The kind of a common idea is that you know he's going to be kicked out of the church. We will see that later kind of explicitly or kicked out of the, the fellowship of the saints. But one of the ideas is this thought that he will then physically, just like in 1 Corinthians 11 here, there's a possibility that his, he's physically going to get sick, maybe die prematurely as part of this lesson, which is very interesting, um, getting somebody over so that possibly he physically die, get sick and die while learning the lesson to save their soul. Again, it's difficult. It's difficult. This is a difficult understanding. A difficult passage to understand. And so I just give you some parallel things to maybe help think about it, okay? So there's a next section as part of this overall section of five. Now, remember, we talked about there's two problems in the church. There's the immoral member. And, of course, we just talked about, right, this is the Paul is doing what the church hadn't done. This rather severe judgment, he's going to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh in verse five. And that little mini section ends in the first five. So now we're going to go on to this next little subject. We're talking about the church again. And the church says, he says to the church, your boasting is not good. Do you not know the little leaven? Leaven's the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, a couple of things as we get started here. One thing about the Passover that the Jews before Christ did for the Passover, or the unbelieving Jews, I suppose, still do now, is that they would clean out, and that's what it being alluded to here, for the Passover, you eat unleavened bread. And you would clean out the leaven from the houses ahead of time, any leaven, so that when it came around to, to make the unleavened bread, you made sure you wouldn't accidentally have leaven in the house. That's kind of that's basically what's talked about. That's that's what I read. So you clean out the unleavened or the leaven from the house, maybe a day or two ahead of time, a couple of days. So when the Passover came around, you when you made bread, you wouldn't accidentally have leavened bread. You want unleavened bread, right? That's kind of the parallel. Let's get rid of the leaven. But we're seeing here that the church here is being arrogant. So what we're going to do is look first at what has Paul already said in 1 Corinthians. Remember, I've already kind of mentioned it already. This is chapter 5. In chapters 1 through 4, you have a lot of criticism and explanations of things, but you have some criticism of this, really this arrogant church. And of course, what's the part of the problem is that this arrogant church, as we said, is kind of either passively or, or actively enabling this immoral member. So in these couple of verses, he's talking about the arrogant church, and he starts with your, and saying, again, in verse 6, it starts out with saying, your boasting is not good. But as a reminder, what has Paul already said in this letter to 1 Corinthians. Look, let's look at some of those, and we're going to find there's a bunch of them. In chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, something we've already read, already heard about, Paul said, the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before a God. So God doesn't want boasting. He doesn't want arrogant. He doesn't want boasting. So remember, Paul is saying, you guys are boasting, and it's not good. And it's good to contrast what he's already, he already said, that God taught, he took the things that are not to nullify the things that are. He, and he's talking about the cultural things of humanity, who thinks that they're all this. And he thinks the things that are not the things that are humble. And what's the, what's the gist of all that? So that no man may boast. If God says, I'm going to take you and use you, but you are something that's kind of a not, and you're going to nullify the things that are. Well, you can't boast about that. So 
God says, no man that may boast before God. In verse 31, he says again, just said as it written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, not boast in yourself, but boast in the Lord. So, but what are these people doing? Well, again, if you read the chapter right before this, you see that they're boasting and they're all impressed with themselves. In 3.3 in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Obviously, they're boasting, they're arrogant, they're acting in this fleshly manner. They're not being humble. And again, he says, again, so then let no one boast in men. And the kind of the little bit of the context is, remember, they had been boasting, I am of Apollos, and I am of Paul, and I am of Christ, right? And part of that, he says, no, no one boast in men. We need to boast in Christ. We boast in God. Let no one boast in men. So all of this has been said before what we've read. And again, in chapter 4, verse 7, for who regards you, the congregation, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So again, their boasting is all distorted. It's like receiving a gift and then boasting about the gift you received. So look at look at me. Ain't that wonderful? And again, God has already talked about this. Do not boast. Boast in the Lord. Boast in the gift giver. Do not boast in yourself as though you had not received it. You're boasting as though this is of me. This is my skills and my, I've done all this about myself. Look, aren't I superior? And God's saying, no, no, no. You received all that you have, you received it, and do not boast in it. So he said all this before he ever got to chapter 5, verse 6. Verse 18, now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, ah, but their power. So remember, some of this, we said this earlier, it was a little odd that they were boasting, and, and that was associated with not disciplining this man. Well, it looks like they were kind of boasting, and like, hey, Paul, you're a distance. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to visit us. We're going to do whatever we want to do. That seems to be part of the message here. And Paul says, well, not entirely accurate. I notice that you've become arrogant and you think I'm not coming to you. But the Lord wills, I'm going to come and I'm going to find out just where these arrogant words are coming from. Where is this power coming from? Because it doesn't look like it's coming from God. You're not boasting in the Lord. You're boasting in yourself. So he's going to find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Where is this power and influence coming from? All of these things about boasting and arrogance and fleshly behavior have been said about the church in Corinth way before we ever got to chapter 5, right? Now let's read it again. Your boasting, which he's mentioned many times, is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven... Leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, when you read this, you, I, I know it's it's easy to think that that little bit of leaven, is that actually the immoral member? And, I, and I, that I read that, you go, you know what? That could be the immoral member. But it really seems to not be the immoral member like, oh, we need to get rid of him because he's leavened. He's going to leaven the whole lump. No, it's this arrogance, this boasting. It's infecting your entire congregation. You need to clean out the leaven. So you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When you read that, sometimes it's a little difficult to keep track of kind of the two things that are being said. You'll notice it says, a little leaven leavens the whole up. So the command is to clean out the old leaven, get rid of this boasting. And now it's going to say, Christ our Passover, because remember, why is that even mentioned? Um, I think one of the reasons is he's using this analogy of leaven, and leaven, of course, is associated with the Passover, this unleavened bread. And he says, then, right, don't miss that, you, you should be a new lump. You are an unleavened. 
And then it says something very fun here, and it's kind of a reminder that, of course, we don't literally celebrate Christians and the Christian church, which originally the church was all Jews, and then ours, praise the Lord, the Gentiles were allowed to become part of it. We don't celebrate the Passover like in the Old Testament, obviously. What does he say here? And let me do this again. You'll notice, let us celebrate the feast. And if you just read the orange there, let us celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what Paul wants them to be. Get rid of this leaven, which is boasting, and replace it with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So how do Christians celebrate Passover? We celebrate the feast of Passover with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And you'll see analogies like that in the New Testament. Paul talks like this about celebrating the feast. Not literally, of course, but we celebrate the feast with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what he's telling them to do. So this is the last section. And you notice even in the chapter five, these sections, these paragraphs, maybe that's what they are in the original. I'm not sure. But these these sections really go together very succinctly. Now, this last one, um, this is the end of chapter 13. I'm going to read it just like I did in the previous verses. We're going to separate it out to clearly understand it a little better in our minds. Because sometimes when he's going back and forth, it can be a little confusing. So I'm going to read it, and then we're going to separate out kind of parts A and separate out part B. So Paul writes, finishing up chapter 5, I wrote you in my letter to the Corinthians, a different letter, of course, not this one. I wrote you my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to leave planet Earth because it's full of immoral people. Verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And that's that's a close quote from like the Old Testament. Let's pull out kind of the two halves, if you will, of these arguments. This is going to be the immoral outsider's portion. So I've, I have dot, dot, dots, and I've taken out the sections that deal with the people inside the church. And we're only going to read the sections that Paul talks about dealing with immoral outsiders. So let's read it again. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, because what did Jesus do? Do you remember what Jesus did and what he was criticized for doing? He hung out with all the sinners. So Paul obviously is not saying do the opposite of Jesus or what he did was wrong or anything such nonsense. And Paul, of course, is saying, we, how would we preach the gospel if we are not associating with immoral people for crying out loud, right? So I interrupted. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or for the covetous and swindlers or with the adulterers, for then you would have to go out of the world. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? But those who are outside, God judges. So part of this verse is, which deals with the more immoral outsiders. We are supposed to associate with them, but, and this is the key part, we're not to judge them, but those who are outside, God judges. That's God's business. So we don't run around judging those who are outside because they are inherently sinful and they're going to stay that way. And quite frankly, why would you assume otherwise? That doesn't mean we're not compassionate and we don't spread godly wisdom, but we don't run around judging them. And we know what judging means in this case is this dealing with this immoral member. And remember, Paul already said, I'm giving him over to say, when it comes to immoral outsiders, right? This is what we read. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Those who are outside, God judges. Now let's read the other portion of these verses that deals with the church. But I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, 
or covetous or an adulterer or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove the wicked man, that's the immoral member, from among yourselves within the church. Why would they do that? Because we are supposed to judge those who are within the church. We are supposed to do that. Now, we often get words which bring up, have negative connotations like, oh, don't be judgmental. Well, you're, well, that's usually a negative idea. We are supposed to be godly judges. We're not supposed to be prejudiced, which means prejudging. We're supposed to get on the information and make good judgments, good, fair judgments. This is not to be negative. This is supposed to be a positive thing. And remember, Paul criticized them for being slow on the job. They weren't doing what they were supposed to be, and he says they were arrogant. And we just read about all the arrogance and the boasting. They were doing all that rather than what they were supposed to be doing, which is what? Having good, godly judgment. You judge those within the church, not outside the church. God judges those. You judge those who are within the church. And if they're idolater, they're covetous, they're a drunkard, they're swindlers, you don't eat with such a one. You don't fellowship with them, and you remove the wicked man from among yourself. Obviously, you don't go out to the world and remove where are they going to go. Um, but from your fellowship, from the church, you remove these people. Now, there's one final thing needs to be said here is the, the nature of how we do church now versus the nature of how they did church, you know, centuries ago, millennia ago. When, when Paul's talking to these people, these are people who come together. They all claim to be Christians and they have issues. And oh, by the way, if you ever want to learn about Christians with issues, I recommend reading the New Testament. That's full of Christians with issues. That's kind of why it's there. But the way that the church met, it was really Christians meeting together. And then if you had a so-called brother within that context of people all proclaiming to be Christians, then it's like you need to deal, you need to judge this person justly so, and you know, Matthew 18 and all that, and you judge the person properly so, and then remove them from your midst. You're not allowed to meet when this the church body gets together, all the Christians get together and meet. You're not allowed. You are excluded because you have issues and you're not dealing with these issues. You're an adulterer, a drunkard, and you're not dealing with it. We're not even going to eat with you. That is the context of, of the church the way they used to meet. Well, we kind of have an issue nowadays because how does churches, quote, church meet now? We associate the word church with the church building, of course, which of course is a tragic mistake. We think the church is being the church building. And what do we do? Well, we're nice folks and we throw open the church front doors and we say, come in, everybody come in. Well, I, yeah, I'm for that. Raise your hand if you're for that, I'm for that. We, we want to spread the gospel. But now what happens if you've got all these people meeting at your church building and you have people showing up who are covetous and they're adulterers and they're revilers and they're drunkards and the swindlers. Do we go, hey, get out of the church building? Well, it seems to be a little bit of a paradox. One of the reasons we deal with this and one of the reasons we have membership is because if you're a member, you're saying, I'm a Christian, I'm part of this group, and I, I will submit myself to the accountability of these Christians, such that if you have immoral behavior, we then kick you out, folks. You get kicked out. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves because this person didn't repent. But if you have this difficulty of what if people, non-believers come into your church? Well, we want them to be there, don't we? How do we hold them accountable when Paul says if they admit that they're not Christians, they're there to learn? Well, we don't want to kick them out, do we? Because they're there to learn. But as Paul says, we don't judge them because they're not a part of the church. They're not members. And that's one of the reasons we have membership is to try to deal with this in a certain way. 
So you can see it kind of becomes complicated, but that is one of the issues that we come up with, we have to deal with. So again, what is 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about? It's not about one thing, it's about two. It's an immoral church member, and it's about an arrogant church which isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing. You give them a little bit of slack because, you know, Paul's letters to the New Testament haven't all been around, and the 11 Corinth is just a cesspool of immorality. So these people had a long way to go. So they have the Apostle Paul to help them along. But remember, you really have to separate people who claim to be brothers, the very important phrase, so-called brother, very important phrase there. You have to separate those people who we are supposed to judge from those who are outside the church who we do not judge in the sense of kicking them out because that's what God is there for.